arrange to be the agents of change to fight the power to be the difference if you stand up for people speaking the truth you might be a change agent too hey everybody welcome to the change agents comics and social issues podcast where we explore graphic novels that have something to say Brought to you by First Legion of Utopia from Renegade Arts Entertainment. An epic tale of killers, queers, and the birth of Canadian socialism. I'm James Davidge, and I'm joined today by Karen Mills of the Alberta Advantage podcast. Hello, everyone. Jason Memel of Sage Theatre and the Penciltown podcast. Hey, everybody. And Stephanie Chan of Foam Armory and Smash Pages Comic News. Hello. Every episode, we discuss a notable work of comic literature while considering its artistic merit and its ability to address our social concerns. And today we're talking about Brought to Light by Alan Moore, Bill Sienkiewicz, Joyce Brabner, and Tom Eats, published by Eclipse Comics in 1988. I bought my first Alan Moore comic when I was 13 years old. It was Sega of Swamp Thing number 50 and featured some of the magic heroes from the Justice Society, so it caught my eye. It was the final issue of the still celebrated American Gothic storyline. The comic was an exciting read and I was immediately impacted by the sophisticated portrayal of DC superheroes. This led me to get on the Watchman bandwagon and I picked up those individual issues as they came out. I became a longtime Alan Moore fan and did my best to collect all of his work. I did not track down Brought to Light until years later, and eBay came into existence. I recall having to get the book shipped to a buddy in the States, as the American vendor did not do international shipping. This added to the mystique of this hard-to-find book. So now let's hear from our guests. What's your connection to the works of Alan Moore and to Brought to Light specifically? Stephanie? Then the first one I read on my own would be V for Vendetta. And uh, that one was just like, that was a bit mind blowing for me. That was like the first real like heavy political commentary type book or whatever. And luckily for me as a very young child, I was already into things in the news and social studies. So. So a lot of the themes didn't escape me. And I was like, whoa, this is so cool. Comics are like like real life. It's not just um, flashy superheroes and, and uh, supervillain type things. So that was that's what kind of blew my mind about um, Alan Moore's Beef Vendetta. Um, as for Brought to Light, actually, this book wasn't even on my radar until uh, you suggested this for this podcast. And, um, and uh, that's what brought me here. So OK, well, thanks, Stephanie. Beef for Vendetta, big one. Um, Karen, what's your connection to the works of Alan Moore and, and possibly to Brought to Light? Sure. Uh, I had kind of a different origin story. Uh, I got super into the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, and I think that was 2003. <laughs> so it was just at the very beginning of discovering comics on my own through uh, the Halifax Library and Strange Adventures when I was a college student in, uh, in Halifax. Uh, so, of course, the comic for 
League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is much different and better. Uh, but I mean, the movie has its charms. It's actually the last performance of Sean Connery play, playing a character that inspired Indiana Jones. So it it seemed fitting. I don't know. There's, there's again, a, a few like bright spots in that pretty bad movie. But like all of Alan Moore's movies and inspired by his works he has disowned it which completely fairly in that case it's just a silly it's basically mission impossible but with like victorian literary characters instead um but um quickly i yeah like like most people would in that situation pivoted to like oh there's also like you know watchmen be for vendetta from hell uh i really liked the kind of victorian inspired stories because i was going through a pretty like yeah like victorian adventure fiction period for some reason in college so it, it synced up quite closely but it was also quite uh like perceptively deconstructing all of those tropes so um pretty good and i haven't really checked into what he's been doing lately i listened to his chapter trap house interview which was quite good uh so still like someone on my radar that you can think he's still working and he's still getting inspiration from his home and from like comics literary traditions so super interesting guy obviously pretty weird but it, you have to just go with it cool and um i find this interesting because i saw league of extraordinary gentlemen at a movie theater in halifax oh there you go i might have so, been in the um, same screening <laughs> possibly on opening night if i recall, I recall oh i don't know I'm, I'm sure i, I didn't go opening night <laughs> oh there you go I re well, who knows? I can't remember. I my friend had a three month old at home, so we we got up. Oh, good. there you go. But I do remember taking him to see it, and uh, and by then I would have read the comics. And <laughs> did you like the movie? And, um, probably better than most people, but but um, as Jason knows, I tend to like everything. So um, <laughs> well, but... <laughs> that's good. You <laughs> but, just enjoy everything. That's better than most people. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm but I just did rewatch it, and I think it helped me go to sleep one night. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it doesn't hold off either. It's just like, yeah, you might have given it a pass before, but yeah. it went not not really anymore. Yeah. So, but um, okay, great, thanks. And the Black Dossier is one of my favorite uh, Alan Moore books. Oh yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, like that series. Once you get into it, there's so much material, and it's all pretty good quality. So yeah, yeah, it's well, I mean, he, he's he's still putting out League of Extraordinary work, uh, gentleman work, and it's uh, it's pretty strange at times. It's pretty playful, but um. Okay. Well, Jason, uh, do you have any thoughts about the works of Alan Moore um, <laughs> and brought to light? And um, uh, spoiler, folks, Jason, this book was recommended by Jason, but once he recommended it, I, I thought it'd be a good one to explore. Uh, uh, if, if you could tell that there is some hinting there in James's voice, that might be because uh, probably everybody on the call knows that I'm a massive Alan Moore fan. Um, uh, I, uh, I grew up in I grew up with comics rather probably in the late 80s to early or to mid 90s and by about almost the millennium um, I'd like I I'd heard of Watchmen in the background but hadn't really paid attention to it I was just reading the books that I was reading at the time like some X-Men and and I think Joe Casey's Deadpool um, uh, which was it was actually a pretty good run but at the time the comics to me were still kind of like a, a fundamentally escapist medium and uh and I had a professor in uh, Mount Royal when I went to Mount Royal who essentially exposed me to both Frank Miller and Alan Moore around the same time. And so I read Watchmen and uh, Dark Knight Returns almost like I think back to back. Um, and that's kind of, that could sort of cracked things open for me in terms of seeing 
both comics as a, a medium that could absorb complexity that that wasn't it wasn't defined by being about uh, escapism and and to Alan Moore and it was one of those things where where there was such uh such a, an amount of of detail and uh and interest in Watchmen that you kind of get hooked and you're like well I just want more and so yeah I, I've tried like I read all of the major books the uh um V for, v for Vendetta, Watchmen, From Hell. Um, I've read the less enjoyed uh, um, image books that he did, like the Spawn issue that he wrote, um, the, the Wildcats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and I'm, I'm still consuming the stuff that he makes now. Like I think the last major release was uh, Jerusalem, which is a massive novel back there on my bookshelf. I actually read it. It took an enormously long time. <laughs> I, I bought it. Does that count? <laughs> it totally does. It totally does. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the thing uh, the, the I'll maybe kind of cap off the history, the history note there with simply by saying, I think the thing that keeps me coming back is that even if I don't always agree with him, I'm always interested in what Alan Moore has been thinking about, uh, because he's somebody who tends to go as far as possible with an idea, and he's relentlessly inventive with them. So that uh, that's always been a, a key piece for me. Um, for this book specifically, for Shadowplay, I read this on a car ride from home to Athabasca for uh, when we uh, we had fam have family up there, and so we'd go up there for Christmases and and summer vacations and stuff. And I remember just uh, slowly absorbing this like gritty, gruesome history while watching like beautiful Alberta scenery pass by out the window. Um, so it's a real, really interesting counterpoint there. Um, yeah, so that's maybe where I'll stop with that. All right. Well, thanks, Jesse. Well, I'm just I'm just gonna ask you a quick question. Where did you find your copy of Brought to Light? Like, uh... oh yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, I think I may have got it at like uh, another dimension or something. You just picked like, it up at a comic store. Yeah, I think it yeah. was just at a store. Because I, you know, when I was looking for it, I couldn't find it anywhere, and, and you couldn't mm -hmm. order it online here in Canada, and it was very. Uh... It was, know, very out of, it was very out of print. It's possibly even been re-released since then. But yeah, this is uh, the Eclipse printing, and yeah. I feel like now, now that I'm thinking about it a bit more, I think I think I got the uh, Miracle Man books out of another dimension in, oh, yeah. in uh, here in Calgary. Uh, but this I might have actually ordered online right. through eBay or or something at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm sure there were copies in Canada. I was just I was just genuinely curious. Um, <laughs> all right. All right, folks. Well, um, time for the summary I've brought to light. And, um, and before that, I'm just going to see if anyone can help me. Can anyone help me properly pronounce Bill Sankiewicz? Uh, Sinkevich. Sinkevich? Sinkevich. Sinkevich. Okay. Yeah. Stephanie's nodding. Yeah, so we'll go with that. <laughs> Let's see how I do here, folks. Okay. Here's your summary, folks. There will be spoilers. Brought to Light, <laughs> Brought to Light essentially contains two stories that draw upon research conducted by the Christic Institute, a group dedicated to documenting and exposing illegal actions of the United States government. The first story, Shadow Play, The Secret Team, by Alan Moore and Bill Sinkevich, maybe I got that, features a drunk eagle clad in a business suit, sitting at a bar revealing many of America's dirty little secrets. These secrets include, in 1954, 
To protect the interests of the United Fruit Company, they overthrew the Guatemalan socialist government and suppressed the Banana Workers Union. This is one of many meddlings in other nations' sovereignty. There were various attempts to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro, and there was the successful assassination of famed revolutionary Che Guevara. To serve American corporate and military interests, they, and by they were essentially meaning the CIA and, uh, and, and other uh, associated groups, they ran guns and smuggled drugs all over the world. And they slaughtered countless dissidents. The Eagle describes it like filling up swimming pools of blood. The second story, Flashpoint, the L.A. Penka bombing by Joyce Brabner and Tom Eats, explores the Christic Institute's direct experiences with the 1984 bombing of a press conference in Nicaragua and their assertion that the CIA was involved with that attack. The book also includes maps and other short works that showcase corruption and violence on a global scale. Overall, the stories appear very well researched and certainly had an impact on me when I first read them 20 years ago. And so now um, let's hear from our guests here. What are your thoughts on the stories shared? So um, Jason, your thoughts. It was interesting uh, rereading it uh, today in prep for the episode after having, I don't think I've like, I've flipped through it, but I don't know if I've read it cover to cover since I read it back on that, that October drive. And um, it's interesting how dense uh, it is um, and yet how useful. I, I think like uh, one of the things that Alan Moore's talked a lot about, uh, and I'm, spe I'm speaking specifically about the, um, uh, the, the first book, Shadow Play, uh, or the first half. I'll, I'll, I'll also get into Flashpoint, but um, uh, that the density of the history that they're going through is made better or made not better, um, easier to, to, to digest through, uh, through Bill Sienkiewicz's art because they're it and like through the almost like political cartoon-esque ability to take like a recognizable figure and help us remember that figure from page to page and, and element to element. So like, I think uh, rereading it um, this time, I think I was less able to kind of keep each of the individual names in my head, but I think I still had a very deep understanding of the flow of how the 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 like the, the history progressed. And I think like the 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 main thought that struck me today reading it um, was just how much um, how uh, how apolitical a lot of these activities are. That it's not like the which might seem weird for me to say, but like because they're overthrowing countries and trying to assassinate people, um, but that the the source for all of this usually comes down to essentially trying to keep a business running, uh, trying to keep money flowing, and that like who they who uh, who the CIA was allying itself to at any given moment or helping had more to do with um, th th them being friendly to whatever it is the CIA wanted to do than it had to do with um, uh, like holding up any particular belief system. The belief system stuff almost seems to come in around the edges when occasionally American morality will, will kind of impose some difficulty on this eagle as he's telling his story. Um, so uh, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I think considering the, situ the world situation we're in, I think it maybe is helpful to think about uh, 
that what's the there's like a Latin phrase qui bono who benefits, right? Um, which uh, that's what that's something that this story really really reminded me of. Um, so so yeah, that's my. Oh and oh and sorry the other one the uh, the flashpoint. Um, I think that one's a lot more of a sort of a straighter documentary if that makes it makes, makes sense a lot less in, um, impressionistic and I think it, it's actually a good counterpoint uh, because it because after reading this like dense um, rich imagery filled book to then read something that it was almost more like a they went here they did this every, everything's being drawn the same everything's being drawn pretty basic like or um, naturalistic it was a uh, uh, it kind of almost gave an even a deeper sense of reality to that specific instance that the that the um, Alan Moore Sienkiewicz book um, makes as part of like one small scene of a larger tapestry all right uh, interesting thoughts there and yeah just hearing you talk about uh comparisons to now it'd be interesting to see uh Moore and Sienkiewicz uh work together maybe on uh, a drunk bear, a drunk Russian bear sitting somewhere yeah. talking about things. Uh, <laughs> that'd be the sequel. Um, okay, uh, Karen, your thoughts on the story? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I guess essentially I agree with Jason in terms of the structure and how the art helps convey the kind of like overwhelming amount of details and information that, uh, I mean, I know I have a couple of annotated books for Alan Moore stories because they're usually quite dense and I'm like well I need like a huge history book for this book to understand all of the details uh but I mean in terms of like just overwhelming you with with sensory information as well it works quite well because by the by the end of the story the the narrator character is just telling you you know what what, what do you see in here or how much can essentially you and your conscience handle as an individual and like the answer is like obviously no individual individual person can parse this because it's just too overwhelming and horrifying um i would disagree a little bit in terms of whether it's political i don't know if political is the right word because uh it is kind of removed from whether you're a democrat or a republican or a liberal or a conservative but it is a thousand percent ideological and the narrator is an american eagle i mean that's the, the ideological symbol of America and every single instance, um, which you know bumps up into what Jason said, it is about protecting business interests, but so is the entire government and infrastructure of the United States. It's to allow the free market and laissez-faire capitalism to continue. And then that means uh, basically taking out America's enemies. And for the past you know, 75 years or since World War II, it's um, ostensibly been the Cold War and the many wars overseas that came after and that's kind of what what it's all showing is that you uh you can see these things and recognize them but you can't really process them because it's on purpose hidden from you so you can't really understand all right thanks for all that um stephanie thoughts on the stories in brought to light um, the first thing that the stories really made me want to do is to read up more on this history of uh, Reagan era um, United States, um, because I think um, as progressives, we keep hearing how horrible Reagan is and how how things, the course of uh, America really changed after Reagan was in office. And um, now that I, I've read this book, I'm like, I am not actually that 
I'm, I'm kind of aware of the Reagan era, but at the same time, I'm not aware of what things were like before Reagan. So that comparison of how much was changed would be, I think would be beneficial. Uh, so I find that, for, so first thing about the stories, it really inspired me to like actually dig deeper because it's so uh, embedded in the history. And it's not, it's, it's de definitely told more like a documentary than it is told as a, as a narrative comic story, if that makes sense. I, um, as opposed to like more of like a historical fiction, I guess. Yeah. It's more of a documentary. And uh, even though the uh, the main character of the Alan Moore uh, Sienkiewicz story is um, a anthropomorphized um, American eagle, um, I I think that really lends itself to this to the story because we're don't don't forget they were looking at like Alan Moore is not American. He's an outsider looking in, and this is how he sees um, and 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 wishes to portray America. And it's a, a drunken eagle just like like letting it rip about everything. And uh, something genius, and I wasn't sure whether to include this in the art part or the story part here, so I'll put it in the story part, was how the, uh, when the eagle, the entire story of Shadowplay, uh, all the narration was not done in traditional comic book lettering. It was a uh, very almost, I don't know, like, like a very clawy, gothy, scratchy kind of um, lettering instead. And at first, that was actually a little hard to read um because we're not used to that like like handwriting is hard for me already because I'm so used to like text in in like typed text so so that was a bit of an adjustment but once I was I got a little past that after a few pages it was easier to get into it and then I I come to really appreciate that stylus of uh telling the story in in these scratchy words even um uh, moving on to the uh, other story, um, Flashpoint. Um, again, that was a very, it was done very documentary style. And um, and it, it really felt like I was watching something off of a, off of a news program as opposed to reading a story. And, um, and the art style is, is a much more realistic style instead. Um, and the, the, the font was, was more, uh, like the the Chris Clear traditional comic font, it wasn't like the scratchy kind, like like that was in the um in Shadowplay. Uh, but something I did notice with that story too, though, is um it's done in such a such a way again that, that it made me really want to say, whoa, there's like a whole bunch of uh, stuff that really happened down down there um, in Central America that like I'm I'm actually like I'm it's on my radar. But I never took that deep dive. And then this was basically like the gateway into what the crap, like seriously, like what the actual crap. And um, I, I almost it I almost feel like we need to these stories. I would love it to be reproduced, reprinted and redistributed because I just feel like it's so relevant now with everything going on. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, Stephanie, I like how you said how it made you want to go learn more. And, and Karen, you mentioned how you know, with other works of Alan Moore, it almost needed to be annotated. I, I felt like this was almost self-annotated. It was full of so much, uh, like, um, dense, dense information uh, in it. And, um, and, and it has been making me kind of reflect on how this book made me feel when I first read it, which was not, certainly not when it came out, probably though about 20 years ago. So about maybe 10 years after it came out. And, um, and I remember the thing that really struck me, and I certainly had some awareness of of of, of the different moments, but not to this detail of, of the American activities. 
Um, I remember coming out of this just really reflecting on almost feeling kind of saddened that in the way that uh, shadow play kind of documents American activities, every time Republican governments got elected out, that didn't end the activities of, of those, um, of that political group. In, in many ways, it, it allowed them to behave more morally because there was no accountability anymore. So there was kind of, they, they had to operate smaller, but they still functioned and how they meddled with other countries with that perspective, but they weren't under the same oversight as when, say, you know, when Nixon was in power, certainly they got to amp things up as far as what they could do by having political power, whether it was Nixon or Ford. Um, and they talk about how when Carter got elected in 76, how, you know, you know that, that thwarted them, but it didn't stop them. They just kind of kept functioning. And I think that was a very eye-opening reality that, um, about democracy, that democracy doesn't necessarily mean that uh, powers that you vote out stop working after you vote them out. And I think we've learned even more about that uh, since this book came out. So uh, those are some of my thoughts there. Um, before we move on, I did, and because the art uh, on both these uh, stories are is so uh, compelling in my mind, I want to hear from everyone. But before we move on to the art, any thoughts on the stories? Uh, any more thoughts? I just want to give a folks a chance. That's okay. We'll move into it now. I'd like to hear, Karen, from you. Uh, what are your thoughts on the art? Uh, yeah, um, so Stephanie did a great job describing the art for um, Shadowplay. Uh, the artist that it most reminded me of was Linda Berry, which oh. is a, kind of an interesting contrast because mm -hmm. her work, even though it's very visually similar, it's very collagey, handwritten, uh, scribbly doodly, but it's very like um, wholesome, inspiring, a little strange sometimes, but it's it's playful. Um, so I, even though this was published years earlier than any of her work, it's kind of using the same visual techniques for a completely different effect. And I found that very, very interesting. Uh, and I think a lot of these would be like, to me, it's just like every page is a poster. It's a sort of like, you you could, you know, put this up and it's a lot of them. I was trying to read them as if they were little stories, uh, like mini stories, kind of similar to how we did uh, the um, 5,000 years of, uh, oh, what was the, the one with the 5,000 years of resistance there we go that's what it's called <laughs> but uh how how that has pages of stories so reminded me of that as well um and then for the other for flash or yeah flashpoint uh it okay it reminded me of a, a comic i borrowed from the library which was the 9 11 commission report which is oh. strange that that's a comic and it's not an amazing comic it's certainly like about as interesting and and enlightening and artistically done as the 9-11 commission report comic can be <laughs> but it's like uh yeah very much like a documentary style uh going through the government documents uh kind of similar art style where it's like photorealistic but kind of I liked the kind of inclusion of the children's drawings in Flashpoint because that just kind of uh ties it into the other where it's like you know bringing in different perspectives of like suffering and um, events that you have a hard time conceptualizing if you're not there. So yeah, so that's my thoughts on the art. I thought it was quite effective and suiting the the stories being told. So. All right. Stephanie, do you want to return to the art at all? I know you did a, some good descriptions before, particularly around the lettering, but uh, more yeah, thoughts? Yeah, all good. 
Yeah, totally. Um, first of all, um, I forgot that this comic was written in the 80s because um, this artwork is so timeless in both stories. Um, Sekhevich is still a very well-known artist, very pro prolific artist, and uh, we see his stuff all the time. Um, but um, it was his art in this particular story because it was an anthropomorphic character. It was very, very stylized. And he's already a very stylized artist um, with lots of ink splatters and washed out colors and everything like that. Um, but at the same time, it was also super expressive and uh, enhanced with that lettering too. And I think that all of it like lent to, to having more power to a story that's mostly basically literally an eagle sitting there talking to you because like there's no real action in in the in most of that story it's 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 like zooming in and out of a, an eagle just like going on and on so um um i just thought that was brilliant just how i can like read an entire comic of a talking head basically um and um the moving on to the flashpoint uh, because it was a like very hyper realistic style um it was also timeless and um it didn't it wasn't like they filled it with like things like that are super 80s either that we would associate uh, in north america as being very 80s like neon colors or or giant shoulder pads and and things like that so so um and and like reading that honestly it's like 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 yes it's, it's like oh this was actually like created in the 80s um, again, and, but then I'm reading this, this today, and if you told me it was drawn today, I would believe you. Yeah, oh, very cool. Um, yeah, Jason, thoughts on the art? Um, I did, I guess I kind of uh, touched on it earlier on in, in the, when I was just talking about the stories. It's, it is hard to separate uh, the art from the story here in, a, um, in the sense that the art is kind of so much a part of the of the intent behind it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think like, um, uh, actually to Stephanie's point, while, while I was reading it, like even though I'd read it before, I was trying to remember, I'm like, when, like what point of history does this book end in? Because I was like, I wouldn't have been surprised if there had been a few more pages that got into like George W. Bush's uh, tenure. You know, I was kind of waiting for that a bit. Um, uh, which actually even even that, like seeing George uh, Bush Sr. in these pages made me think about the years of George Bush Jr. Uh, and and how much of those um, those company activities just continued that uh, like if if more were to write a sequel just on those on those like the following years, uh, how much would have continued. But uh, but back to the art, I think, um, yeah, like I Sienkiewicz has always been very famous for how how um, expressive his work is. And I think it's even more so because it's clear he can also draw very cleanly. Um, uh, that like the, the, the chaos of his style isn't, isn't um, the thing he's stuck in. So, which means that like all of those, all of the directions that his art goes in are so- um, uh, Deliberate. Like deliberate, exactly. Yeah, it, it, like so incredibly deliberate. Like the, there's, um, there's a drawing here where like they've got like I think Shea Guevara uh, is playing some sort of game with uh, the eagle and like the Shea Guevara is drawn in this like in lackadaisical style whereas uh, the eagle's got like all of these sharp pen lines throughout it and like 
those choices uh, help enhance what you're reading. Here's the the thing that I I don't know maybe maybe it's just my own uh, appreciation for it. At no point did I feel like all of this detail or sorry all of this expressiveness was manipulative. Like I never felt like I was being um, uh, how do I put it coerced beyond the information that was being presented. Um, That's just what they want you to feel. Though. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I, because I, that is something that I, I tend to shy away from if I feel like somebody's trying to sell me something. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, clearly they're starting from a perspective and 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 going from that from that angle. But the fact that it's it's full of information that is ostensibly historical and documented means that these feel more like playful interpretations. Uh, this feels more like something like The Daily Show where what they're making fun of is real life, not rather than um, uh, trying to tell you what real life should be, if that makes sense as a difference. Um, but yeah, so uh, so that, that's kind of where I where I land on the um, uh, the the art style. The one other thing is um, you mentioned in your introduction about how uh, how much blood can fill a, a pool. And that's a, as a reference point. The fact that that is continually used throughout the book as sort of um, measurements of atrocity is chilling. Um, and it's so simple. It's a red rectangle with a little white rectangle inside of it uh, to like denote the um, the uh, the diving board. And it's, yeah, so like just little little touches like that are just so, so haunting. Um, and then the the counterpoint story, and we've already kind of gone into this before, but it's, it's almost like I think most of its photo reference um, it's a lot more subdued in its uh, in its art style and in its presentation style, and I think again it creates um, such a fascinating counterpoint between the two. Um, yeah. All right. Thanks. Um, thanks everyone for all those thoughts. Um, I'm going to add a couple things. Well, well, one thing, and then I'll hear see if anyone has any other thoughts before we move on to similar works. But um, I just wanted to mention if uh, I wasn't wasn't even sure if our if our guest knew that uh, Joyce Brabner. I found it fascinating, even when I got it, that she's Harvey Picard's wife, and um, oh. and, um, and the, the the creator of American Splendor, which is one of the first real independent um, kind of self autobiographical uh, comics. So, it, who just you know, Harvey Picard is just a file clerk that writes about being a grumpy file clerk, and um, and um, so I find that really interesting that that that. Uh, Joyce really did have kind of a life in comics beyond Harvey and in many ways helped Harvey's career throughout and um, and that she had this clear kind of kind of connection to, to, to activism with, within this work and, and with other work. So I thought that was interesting. Um, I'm going to end with a quote from uh, Shadow Play that, that I felt like sharing before we wrap up. But before I do that, does anyone want to share any other thoughts about... Uh, brought to light before we move into similar works but i think i think everyone's shared a, a lot of great ideas but i i just wanted to see if anything had popped up in anyone's head there is there's one thing that uh that really struck me uh at the end of the story this time and i think again this is a an, an important point uh for where we are currently with the with the current world situation and just in general um uh it's near the end the eagle says uh see we ain't even after your money you're a taxpayer we already got it we don't even want you to do anything. In fact, just the opposite. Come on, take a look. All we're asking is your indifference to turn away, pretend it ain't happening. Ain't, got, ain't like you got any, uh, got to give up any part of yourself, no important part anyway. Come on, look closer. And that to me 
is that like that uh, <laughs> uh, openly asking for your indifference is yeah. haunting um, and and very useful. That's almost a better quote to end things on, Jason. But um, that was a really good one. Um, and I remember Sorry. Uh, when no, no, that's perfect. I remember when I read that a couple of days ago. That 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 hit me. Um, but yeah. So and I'm just gonna. I, but I was also hit by this uh, one specific line in this in the very ending quote because the whole thing is it is mostly this eagle, um, uh, this drunken uh, eagle at a bar uh, talking. But there is this kind of uh, un un unclarified narrator that shows up at the start of the book and then leaves at the end. And whether it's Alan Moore or just more just choosing to have this, this, this person provide a little more commentary beyond the Eagle. Although what the Eagle says there, I think, um, I think is, is relevant no matter when it's being read, but I just, um, I just wanted to read this cause I, cause I found there was some poeticness in this. And I think this is part of what I think helps elevate this from being a, a, uh, a bunch of uh you know cartooned annotations to to being you know a work of literature is is he is trying to speak a little deeper so i'm just going to share what um what the final character says here um and then outside down boulevards of murderers you run your breath that scalds your throat your feet like madmen's fists upon the sidewalk pounding desperate to get out oh to be gone from here oh to be in a place where things are sometimes done in kindness. Not far to your ship now, waiting there to take you home, with reassuring lights, with decks where party music plays into the night and people kiss against the rail. Not far, the wharf comes into sight. The shadows play. The harbor lanterns tremble. And I just like that line where things are sometimes done in kindness, because I think we are all hoping for more of that uh, as we move ahead here. Um, so I'd love to hear from you, uh, everyone, um, as we move on here. Uh, are there any similar works to suggest? Uh, Karen? Right. So I, I don't know if this is a similar work artistically. It's not uh, necessarily literature or art. But uh, what I was thinking of the whole time is uh, book that came out in let's see 2020 uh called the J jakarta method so it hits on a lot of the similar themes uh so that the main focus or narrative is uh well the, the subtitle uh washington's anti-communist crusade and the mass murder program that shaped our world so that's <laughs> pretty audacious but it's uh the indonesian mass killings of 1950 uh, 65 and 66 um but the what the title refers to is uh, the the method or the jakarta method uh the author explains vincent bevins as the author um that what the cia did with this and what they want to do in an ideal case and everything they're involved in is that it disappears down the memory hole so that whenever you know america's involvement overseas or the CIA itself comes up in discussion, people think about like movie spies or like, well, you know, they're not great, but at least they're keeping us safe from worse stuff. But uh, things like, you know, a, a million people being killed in Indonesia because they are 
like ideologically inconsistent with what America wants, which uh, is, is again, kind of ties back to our book we're discussing. Uh, so this, it was done successfully, the author argues in Indonesia and in other places as well as kind of a case study. And it's kind of a contrast to the, the quotes that were being read because I think a lot of people it's not that they don't consider that these things are being not done in their own country's name or that these things are happening at all or have happened or will continue to happen. It's just like, it seems so abstract and so like unchangeable and overwhelming that you, you can't even start to think about it or you get kind of confused and discouraged. And again, that's what they want you to think. So not to go too far down a conspiracy hole but it's one of those things that if if things like uh jakarta and mk ultra and things are real it's like well you're, you're not exactly being paranoid so that's that's my recommendation the book the jakarta method by vincent evans sounds, sounds very interesting um stephanie similar works so i'm gonna do something crazy and different with my similar works recommendation <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, um, after reading this, I actually took a little bit of a, a deeper dive into Joyce uh, uh, Brobner, oh. and I found out she has this old comic called Real War Stories. Mm. Um, I have not yet tracked down copies of this, but it just sounds so brilliant. Um, she had a lot of big name creators on there, including Mike Barr, Brian Balan, Denny O'Neill, and... Um, um, apparently, this comic book, um, she insisted it be in color, so that way kids would read it. And um, that drew the attention of the government. <laughs> so so now I'm completely intrigued, and I'm going to just go ahead and recommend it without reading it yet, because I think, um, uh, considering her American Splendor and, uh, and the, this story here, yeah. um, she probably has a lot of really good stories to, to put together and put out there. And uh, I, I have a feeling it, it's, it's, good or, it's a good one to track down. And, sorry, and, that, and that's called Real War Stories? It's called Real War Stories, yeah. and it was published by Eclipse Comics in uh, the late 80s and early 90s. Right around when this came out from Eclipse as well. Interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Very cool. That's an excellent uh, recommendation, Stephanie. Um, okay, Jason, similar works. Um, so one thing, actually, I just read this story recently. I, I would have had a hard time coming up with something that that uh, was similar. <laughs> uh, and in this case, it, it isn't even really directly similar so much as it maybe touches on the last theme that I mentioned, the, the quote that I mentioned, is that I recently finished Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, that, that text is backwards there. Um, the Wind's Twelve Quarters. It's a collection of her short stories. And in it is a story called um, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And uh, this story is one that she writes. Um, it's it's relatively uh, famous, maybe? I don't know. I, I feel like I need to spoil it for me to explain why this is similar, it's but it's... Spoilers, yeah. everyone. <laughs> Spoilers. It's also, I think, was written in the early 70s. So, you yeah. know, you had your They've time. had time. We've all had yeah. time. Um, it's a it's a really short story and it's uh, basically she paints this story of a beautiful town a beautiful city where everybody is living a, um, an honestly open happy life but somewhere in this town there is a child that is basically being tortured um not to death but is being like is going through like going through torment and everyone in the town knows it but most of the people in the town decide that 
that they know that this this torture is part of what allows their town to remain happy and so they there they start to rationalize for themselves why it's okay and so the uh, the end of the story is about the very few people who feel like they can no longer live in that city and are the ones who walk away from Omelis. Um, and so, yeah, I found it really haunting. And uh, and then especially in a counterpoint to re having reread this just uh, recently afterwards, uh, that notion of like moral, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, oh shoot. Uh, somebody help me out when you're when you're being uh, complicit, moral complicity. Um, uh, I think that's that's part of what brought to light is bringing into the what was bringing to light per se was a certain amount of complicity for what you're allowing to have happen. And uh, and I think the Ursula K. Le Guin story kind of goes in the same place. All right, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, um, nothing nothing revelatory, and I didn't. I found all, all your suggestions very interesting, but uh, I possibly suggested Joe Sacco before, but it just comes into play on, on just someone who effectively uses comics to explore uh, geopolitical uh, uh, atrocities and, and, and other such issues uh, around the world. His work is amazing. And then I guess what I thought about really what helped broaden my um, worldview when I was a kid um, and really helped understand kind of the complications and of the behavior of the American government is uh, I am a huge, I was a huge fan of the Doonesbury comics and, and they really, as much as they were, you know, mainstream uh, newspaper comic strips, they didn't shy away from really uh, exposing or exploring uh, some of the, the moral questions of, of the American government, uh, particularly when, when they, whether, I mean, and he did this for decades and decades, uh, including, in the 60s with the Vietnam War and and throughout the 70s and 80s and uh, in many ways he was um making uh, funny little comic strips about uh this behavior um uh in 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 mainstream newspapers uh not 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 getting as uh intense as what uh, brought the light did though uh, wasn't there like a CIA operative character in Doonesbury like a guy always in sunglasses and well, and, and that guy's well, there was a few, absolutely. Like they would, I mean, he had, and he would he would do very satirical comic books about it. About, I mean, I still remember when whether it was the Contras or somewhere in Nicaragua, and they would just show these CIA operatives sitting there with their sunglasses and whatnot, and money literally falling from airplanes, and uh, like you know, so he was writing about a lot of this stuff in broad daylight um, back then, and, and using satire. Um, um, effectively there. And then, um, and then, I mean, the main guy he had was Duke who was, uh, who, who had sunglasses and, uh, and, uh, and, and his cigarette and he was based directly off of, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, mm, but, then he, right. but, he, but then he thrust him right into, he was the ambassador to China and he was <laughs> all sorts, he would get into all sorts of nitty gritty. Uh, he was in the middle East for a while. He would get into all sorts of trouble. Um, mm. you know, but, but it was, and he was based and uh, loosely on a uh, on Hunter S. Thompson, um, yeah. Um, so uh, thanks everyone uh, for a great conversation on on, uh, on a really interesting book, and thanks Jason for that uh, recommendation. Um, so let's just hear from folks. Uh, anything else to share with what's going on with you, Stephanie? Well, convention season looks like it's going to start revving up. So yeah. hopefully I'll be able to see more of you and um, in person. And um, I don't have my travel schedule yet, at, but um, 
at minimum, I'll probably be at the Calgary show. I'm trying to hit San Diego. Maybe I'll do San Jose. Uh, we'll see what else goes on from there. Um, I'll be with the Foam Armory, um, with my Foam Armory uh, cosplay company. Cool. So that's, that's where you'll find me. And um, I am, I, it is in its infancy, so I can't really give you details yet. But in a couple of months, I think I'll be doing a comic podcast as well. So. Oh, mm. cool. Well, there you go. Very cool. Um, Jason, anything else to share? Uh, yeah, so the, the theater company that I work for, Sage Theater, we've got a production coming up late April um, here in Calgary, Alberta. That's a, an adaptation of an autobiography of Clem Martini's experience with his brother who has schizophrenia and his mother as she gained dementia. And so uh, as much as it is also a family portrait, it's also a kind of an examination of, of caregiving and how the, the bureaucracy and mechanisms of that often don't, like maybe aren't really serving us as well as they could. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so it'll be exploring, uh, exploring some of the issues around that. And that'll be in end of April in C-Space Theater. And, um, I think that's, yeah, that's the main thing for me right now. Very cool. I love, I love the C-Space Theater. Um, all right. Uh, Karen, anything else to share? Sure. Uh, this is a little early to plug it, but I will definitely <laughs> let people know just based on what we'll probably, are going to be saying in the next couple of minutes uh but yeah um so i'm actually starting a graphic design business so hopefully you'll be able to follow it, me on social media and see uh the reveal of the name logo past work uh because i'm i'm just tired with uh just going to an office and uh i'd rather just uh contact people i know and people i've yet to meet and uh, work with them to do uh, graphic design and illustration, as well as some of my own work that kind of fits into projects I've done before, but want to have a little bit more room to explore on my own. So that's exciting. And hopefully you'll follow me uh, as well. So. All right. Thanks very much. Um, all right, folks, as we come to a close, I will mention one more time that this podcast is brought to you by First Legion of Utopia from Renegade Arts Entertainment. Uh, by myself, James Davidge, Bob Proder, Nick Johnson, and Ryan Ferrier. An epic tale of killers, queers, and the birth of Canadian socialism. And now it's time to announce that the Change Agents Comics and Social Issues podcast will be going on hiatus for a spell. I want to thank all of our listeners out there, and I want to give a huge thanks to our guests for their commitment to the program and for sharing their amazing insights over the last two years. It's been a joy to make this podcast with them, and I hope to do more in the future. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.